welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Philippians 3, starting in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we, uh, we come before your word to hear from you. Lord, as your word says here that we have the anticipation that we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And we just stand in awe of that. We stand in awe of the fact that your son, Jesus, will return and subject all things to himself. He'll make this whole world new, set all things right. And then we're just thrilled to hear he's going to do that in us. He's going to give us right affections, right desires, right loves, that we would be transformed from the inside out, that we would have hearts that we could actually trust, hearts that love the right things, hearts that love you above all else and others before ourselves. We look forward to that day, Lord, and we pray, Lord, as we look into this passage, that the joy of seeing that coming would give us the endurance to stand. And I I pray for those that are here, Lord, that it was everything they could possibly muster to be here. Lord, that it was every last bit of strength that you had given them to to get in the car and come here um, in faith that they would hear from you and be strengthened. And I just pray, Lord, that they would get the desire of their heart, that they would leave here filled, transformed, strengthened, filled with joy, ready to endure more hardships and difficulties, knowing they are not alone. I pray, Lord, that as the intent of this passage is that we would stand firm, that we would press on, that we would strive forward, that we would hold fast, because what we're holding fast to is you, and you're the greatest treasure. Lord, show us that again, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week for Reformation Sunday, we looked at the beginning of Philippians 3, and it was just this amazing passage, wasn't it, of the gospel, the amazing message that It's in Jesus' righteousness, not in ours, that we're saved. It's his righteousness alone. And when people hear that gospel message, they can sometimes have concerns about it. 
Sometimes I can wonder, like, what kind of life does someone lead that believes they already have salvation? That's a concern you'll often hear from people. Because the gospel is unique. The gospel is unique amongst world religions because in the gospel you get the salvation up front. You believe in him and you get the salvation up front. All other religions are basically, hey, you're going to strive, you're going to try and live the best life you can, and we'll see at the end. It'll be a surprise. That'll be fun. You know, to see if you really made it, to see if you're really going to inherit heaven. But in the gospel, we get it up front. We saw last week that the moment you believe upon Jesus Christ, and if you came in here not as a believer, the moment you believe upon Jesus Christ, you are found in him with a righteousness that's not your own, verse 9 says. It's a righteousness of Christ. It's, it's not yours. And you can be absolutely assured in that moment that you trust in Jesus, that you're right before God and headed for everlasting happiness. What an amazing thing, right? But here's the concern people have. You know, doesn't that take away the motivation to lead a good life? If you guys talk to people of other religions, other faiths, maybe even some branches of Christianity that tend towards a little bit more legalism, have you ever encountered people saying, well, you know, if you believe that, you're going to live whatever way you want, you know, that it would somehow take away your motivation. It didn't take away Paul's, and we can see that from this passage. We can see in this text that Paul's belief in the gospel made his life a vigorous pursuit of Christ-likeness. He says in verse 12, he presses on. He says in verse 13, he strains forward. He says in verse 16 that the gospel makes us hold true. 17, that it makes us imitate others who do the same. And then chapter 4, verse 1, that it makes us stand firm. Paul shows us that a true belief in the gospel causes us to live a life of vigorous pursuit of Christ-likeness. And by giving himself as an example here, he's trying to show us what an ordinary response to the gospel is. He says down in verse 17 that he's, he's been given as your example. That what we see in this passage is what the gospel ordinarily should do in a person's life. This is the normal response to the gospel hope we have. He says in verse 12, I press on. Take a look at it. He says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The this there that he is pressing on towards and the thing that he has not obtained, it fits back to verse 11. It's the resurrection. What's going on here? He's saying that one day all of us who trust in Christ are going to be gloriously transformed so that we are just like Christ, just like Christ in our desires and affections and actions, and we're going to be just like him. And Paul's saying that believing that makes him all the more want to be like Christ now. That knowing he's got this future where he's going to be made perfect like Christ, right now he wants as much of that as he can possibly get. And he says in this passage three times, he says, I'm not perfect. He says, I don't consider myself to have attained it, you know, by saying considered, he's saying, I really thought about this. It's not that I'm in a funk and I'm feeling bad about myself right now, so I kind of feel like I don't measure up. He's saying, no, no, after a considered assessment of myself, I know that I've not arrived. He says that three times. And what he's saying is he's saying that there's this gap. There's this gap between who I am in Christ, the righteousness I have, my identity. There's a gap between that and what I'm like now. And there's a gap between what I'm like now and what I shall be like when Christ returns. So my, my destiny, there's a big gap between what I'm like now and what I'm going to be, and there's a big gap between what I've been credited and what I am. And he's like, I do everything I can to close that gap, to close the gap between what Christ is like and what I'm like. He says, I press on. Paul's desire here is beautifully captured in a prayer that I love from Robert Murray McChain. He was a 19th century pastor. This was his prayer. Listen to this. Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. Isn't that awesome? 
Don't you love that prayer? Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. That's what Paul's experiencing here. Knowing that he's already righteous in Christ and that he's headed to Christ-like perfection, he wants as much of Christ-likeness as he can get now. He wants to be as much like Jesus as he can be. In verse 13, he says, I, I strain forward. And these verses press on, now he's straining forward. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. And I would just ask you this morning, is your pursuit of Christ-likeness, does it look like straining forward? Is there that kind of energy towards it? That you have this, this, this huge desire, knowing that you're going to be perfect like Christ one day, to strain forward to obtain as much of transformation like Jesus as you can. That's what grace does. That's what grace does to us. It makes us want to want more of Christ now. You know, a sure sign that we've tasted the goodness of God is that we want more of him. You know, if you tasted some of them, you want more. And that's what we see here in Paul is this desire to be more and more like Christ. But I love how realistic he is in verse uh, 13. Look at what he says. He goes, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. I love that part about, I I forget what lies behind. Isn't that like a beautiful phrase? I forget what lies behind. Because our past can be a real hindrance in our pursuit of Christ. Both good and bad, by the way. I know most of us think of the bad past things that we've done that hold us back, but what about the good? You know, some of us have experienced in our lives maybe great times of revival in the past, great times of fruitfulness, great times of ministry in the past, and and you can be tempted to say like, oh, those were the good old days. You know, that's when I was young and on fire for the Lord. That's normal. You know, you start off on fire and you just kind of smolder out. People don't say that, but that's what they're thinking. That's when I was young, and that's when I was on fire for the Lord. I'm never going to experience anything like that. And maybe at this point in your life, you've entered uh, Christian retirement, you know, and you're really focusing on self-care, and you're doing great at self-care. Good job. Christian virtue. Where did you guys get the idea, though, that the Christian life should be like a, a fire that's dying out? You know, Proverbs 4.18 doesn't compare the Christian life to a fading fire, but a rising sun. It says this, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. That's normal sanctification. Brighter and brighter until the full day when Christ appears. Paul's fire grew, didn't it? There is a Christian retirement. It's called death. When you're there, you'll know it. But guys, as long as you're alive, the Lord has more for you to learn and more for you to grow on and more fruit of ministry for you. I think a lot of times we think that, you know, our days are done as far as God using us and growing us and us learning something new, and becoming much more like Christ. That's not the case. Paul says here, I strain forward to what lies ahead. But we can also be held back by past regrets, right? That's a big one, you know? The stupidity, <laughs> the self-centeredness, the, the lost relationships, the shame, the missed opportunities, the failures, Right? You can be weighed down by that. You can see that goal of becoming more and more like Christ in this life, and you can say, you know, you can just keep looking back at, at the sin and the stupidity and the self-centeredness, and you're just always looking back at your past and regretting it. You guys know the devil loves to tempt us to sin, and then when we give into it, to rub our noses in it for the rest of our lives. It's super evil. It's what you'd expect of the devil. But he, he loves to tempt us, and then when we give in, then he's the self-righteous one, right? He's the righteous one. He's like, look at what you did. How could you have done that? You know, he loves to rub our noses in it for the rest of our lives. Paul here, at this point, he's, he's been a Christian for over 20 years, and what he's saying is, you know, he's saying, hey, 
I have plenty of things to regret too. We all do. But let me tell you what I do. I love that. He goes, let me tell you what I do. He goes, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. If you're prone to wallow in past stupidity and sin and failures and shame, here's what you should do. You should confess your sin, right? You should repent of it. You should tell the devil to go to hell. And then you should move on, right? When he condemns you and stuff like that, you feel free to do that. He's the only person you could do that to. But, and then move on. The, guys, there is no Christian discipline of wallowing. You know, sometimes we think that wallowing is somehow holy because we're really taking our sin seriously. There is no Christian discipline of wallowing. We need to repent, we need to move on, and we need to press on and stop looking back. I mean, I'm no runner, maybe you can tell. I'm no runner, but I'll tell you, I'm confident of this. The best runners do not do their best running by constantly looking backwards. Can you imagine? You know, that's what we're trying to do when we're constantly looking at our past and wallowing over our past and not pressing forward. He says in verse 14, he goes, I press on. I press on towards the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if anything, you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Guys, this passage is amazing because it's it's this imagery of a race and going for a prize. But what it tells us is that God himself has called you to Christ. God has called you. Why should you press on? God has called you. That's how you ended up in the race. You're in this race that you didn't sign up for. You know, you're wandering around doing your own thing. God calls you. He draws you to himself. And then suddenly you're in this race you didn't sign up for. And you got like a number on you and you're little dolphin shorts. And uh, you're with a bunch of other people running. And you're like, I didn't sign up for this race. What happened? God called you. God grabbed you. God took you. He's chosen you. If God has chosen you, run to him. You know, keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on Christ. You're chosen. Run hard. Paul says in verse 16, he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. He's like, let us refuse to lose ground or to turn back or to go back. And it really helps you to have some friends around you that want to do the same thing. We see that in verse 17. He says, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. If we're going to really pursue Christ, we're going to need people around us that do the same thing. We need to follow some examples. I know, you know, when I say, you know, we follow the people near us, you know, I know you guys are all lions and not sheep now and all that nonsense. But the fact of the matter is you guys are sheep. We all are. We're all herd animals. And we follow the people that are around us. And Paul says, get people around you that are, that are going for the same thing. He says, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example we've given in us. And Paul gives examples like himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus. But we need to surround ourselves, guys, with friends, with other believers who are really pursuing Christ, who really want to be transformed like Christ. Because we're affected. We are sheep. We're affected by the people that are around us. We need to surround ourselves with people who want Christ more than us. Do you have people around you like that? People that want Christ-likeness even more than you? I mean, if you're going to be a runner, you'd get some running buddies, right? And you'd try to get some running buddies that run better than you do. And you'd want to think through like, hey, what do you eat? How do you train? What kind of gear do you have? You know, you would do those kinds of things. We need to surround ourselves with people who are running hard after Christ and find out what what are their habits? You know, how do they pray? What do they pray for? What are they reading? What fills their minds? You know, how do they deal with their own sin when they kind of veer off the path? How do they get back on? How do they repent of their sin? How do they return to the race? 
Like we need more than just to watch people's actions. We need to, we need to see how they train. We need to see what's really making them tick. Like they have a heart that wants Christ more than me. Like what's, what's behind that? How could I follow e- even what they do to take care of their own hearts? And then Paul, here in verse 18, he, uh, he says, it's also helpful to consider the wrecks you see along the way. Uh, we all know people that, that started off on the path and have left, right? I think all of us, if you've been a Christian long enough, know people that have started the race and have veered off the path. They've turned their back on the Lord and they haven't returned. A friend of mine, who's, uh, he's a first responder, when he was uh, working the Ortega Highway, he said, there's so many cars that have gone off the edge there that they have to mark the cars that are down the canyon. They can't pull them all up. There's at least dozens of them, maybe more, cars all over along the Ortega. And what they do is they put bright paint on the ones that they've already dealt with. Because the next time somebody flies off a cliff, they don't want to go looking through cars that are old wrecks. It would really be helpful, if you drive the Ortega regularly, to consider all those wrecks down there. And that's what Paul does in verse 18. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame, and their minds are set on earthly things. These are people who started off on the path but later veered off the cliff following their own sin. And Paul doesn't say look at them as, you know, a commuter gawks at an accident as they're driving by. Paul here is weeping over them as lost friends. You see it? He says, For many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. And you might ask, well, what, what caused them to veer off? You know, that's an important thing to look at. I mean, if, if some people veer off and go off the cliff, like, how did that happen? I don't want that to happen to me. Paul tells us, he says, their God is their belly. What does that mean? It means that they're ruled by their inner feelings and desires. Their God, their ultimate authority is whatever they're feeling, whatever their appetites are, whatever their emotions are, whatever their desires are. That's their God. That's what they always obey in every circumstance. They do whatever their desires tell them to do. They have no higher authority. It's their, it's their own emotions and feelings and desires that are their God, not Christ. It's pretty applicable, huh? It says their glory is their shame. No longer are they entranced by the glory of God, right? But they glory in, in their sin. That their sin has become that ultimate treasure. Their sin has become that ultimate thing that they pursue. They, they glory in it. They may even expect us to affirm and congratulate them in pursuing it. Right? They glory in their shame. It says their, their minds are set on earthly things. This is helpful because the unkept mind and heart is what led to the wrecked life. Right? It was the heart first. It was, it was the eyes of the mind and the eyes of the heart coming off of Christ and then the veering of the entire life. One thing we can look at when we look at Philippians, so last week we looked at Philippians 1 through 11, and now we're, this is the second half. When you put the two halves of Philippians 3 together, one thing you can see is there's really two ways to distort the gospel. There's two ways to miss the gospel. Last week we looked at the first way, which is legalism, right? Legalism is the belief that our own goodness somehow earns our salvation. Last week we saw that's an impossible project, that our good deeds will never be good enough to inherit eternal life. Only Christ's righteousness is good enough. And if we trust in him, then we're in him and we're saved. But legalism is that trusting in your own righteousness. But in this verse, in 18 and 19, Paul's showing another distortion of the gospel, and that would be called license. 
You have two ways to miss the gospel, legalism and license. License is kind of what it sounds like. License turns the gospel into license to sin. We're all familiar with this too. It's the idea that if Christ is our righteousness and we're accepted in him because of his good works, why do any of our own? You know, why worry about life transformation if, if we're accepted just in Christ? License says, sin all you want, it's paid for. And I know every single one of you, when you've been in a situation heavily tempted by sin, have had the thought, I'll be forgiven anyway. Right? You've had that, right? Okay, good. I was like, we could do a sermon on lying, or we could do this one. It's totally up to you. But we've all had that, right? Where we're really tempted and we go, you know what? I'll be forgiven anyway. That's license. It's turning the gospel into a license to sin. It's the gospel twisted. So there's two ways to distort the gospel. There's license and legalism. The second century African church father, Tertullian, he said this, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, the doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two opposite errors, legalism and license. Right? This has been the constant struggle. And I got a slide for you guys that are more visual about this, but um, if we could see. So legalism is faith in Christ plus your own works gives you salvation, right? That's legalism. License is faith alone in Christ gives you salvation minus works. So it gives you salvation but no life change. That's license. And then the gospel is faith alone gives you salvation plus being united with Christ there's works as well that come from that. The works don't get you the salvation. Notice they're not on this side of the equation. They're over here. They're a fruit of faith. They're a fruit of union with Christ. And, and the reason why you get both of these things is because when you trust in Jesus, you're united to the whole Christ. You're not just united to his perfect past record. You're also united to his present life. Not only do you get surrounded by his righteousness, but you get filled with his life that transforms you. And, and we, all of us, tend to drift to one or the other. We either tend to drift towards legalism or we tend to drift towards license. It might be a good thing to ask yourself this morning, like, which one do you tend to drift towards? You know, do you tend to be a more legalistic person, thinking that your own goodness is somehow going to make you right with God? Or you tend to be more licentious, the type of person that thinks, oh, well, you know, if Jesus paid it all, then what's the pressure here? You know, why should I even try? And you guys have an idea which one you struggle with? We're going to all raise hands. No, we're not going to do that. But one way to know, though, is this way. You know which one you're more prone to by the, which one you think is the greatest danger. So if you're the kind of person that says, oh, no, no, license isn't the real problem. It's all legalism. Legalism is like the biggest threat there could possibly be. The other one's real small. Then you're going to attempt towards license. If you are the kind of person that says, you know what, the whole problem's license. The whole problem is, you know, cheap grace. People, you know, saying they're trusting in Jesus and living any way they like. And you think that's a way bigger threat than the other one. Then you're going to tempt towards legalism. They're both bad, though, guys. They're both a danger. Last week, Paul called the legalists dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. That's not good. This week, he says that those who practice license are enemies of the cross. So either way, license or legalism are both a great danger. You, you might ask, well, why are the licentious? He says, enemies of the cross, that seems strong. It's because the cross, guys, it's because Jesus died not only to pay for your sins, but to give you a new life. And to deny that second half is, is to deny the cross itself. So we all tend to drift towards one or the other. Let me ask you this, though, and you can respond to this. Which one does our culture tend towards? 
Is our culture a legalistic culture or a licentious culture? It's, it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. I knew, you'd, I knew you'd answer licentious. If we take legalism in the sense, though, of what you need to do to be right with them, okay, now you're like, okay, wait, maybe there is some legalism here. You know, it's a godless thing, right? There's no God involved in this. But our culture can also be very legalistic. Your right standing with the culture depends greatly on you having the right views, using the right words, associating with the right people, sometimes even eating the right foods. It's an interesting kind of secular legalism. If you fail, you can be excommunicated for life, right? There's plenty of law in our culture, but there's no grace. You know, the laws are different. The laws are godless, and there's no grace. Our culture, obviously, like you guys answered, has a huge dose of license as well. No one can ever tell you, you know, not to follow your own desires. They say, no, your God should be your belly. You should follow whatever your desires are, whatever your wants are. You should be true to yourself, by which they mean you should be true to your wants. I always find this very confusing because if, it's, if I'm supposed to like follow my emotions, I mentioned this before, I'd be like, which ones? Like, I don't know how turbulent you guys are. I'm extremely turbulent. My life would be so chaotic if I followed my emotions. Every moment, it's something different. It's a confusing mix of legalism and license in our culture, and it's actually super stressful for those who don't have the gospel. So what's the solution to license? What's the solution to a person taking advantage of the grace of God? The solution to license is not legalism. That's one thing that's important to know. The legalists are always like, see, I told you that's what would happen. What they need is some laws here, you know? Like what they need is some, something more than the Bible. We need to really make sure we corral them. We need to ma- really make sure that they're looking to, maybe they need to look to their goodness a little bit for their salvation. You know, look at them going all crazy. Maybe we should be like, hey, you know, you could feel like you're really saved if you did this, this, and this. What is that? It's trying to fix license with legalism. It's not the way you do it. You don't like cure one disease by catching another one, right? That's not the way this is done. Look at how Paul addresses license. So he just describes these people. He says, For many of whom I have often told you, now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. And then listen to how he addresses it. This is really cool. He's like, what's the solution? But our citizenship is in heaven, from where we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Notice the but there in verse 20. Paul's solution to license, Paul's solution to people that taking advantage of the grace of God is not like, okay, this is obviously isn't working. I know I told you that you're saved, not by your own works, but a little bit of a change. Let's make sure you have enough works to feel saved. Okay, I'm going to get you to look at your works a little bit. I'm going to still tell you that you're not saved by your works, but I'm going to have you looking at your works a lot because obviously they need to be tuned up. It's not what he does, right? Because it's a trap, and I mentioned this before. If you're going to look to your works to know whether you're saved or not, how much will be enough? And who made you the judge? It's a trap, right? So what does he do? It's kind of interesting. Instead, Paul says, what's going to protect you from turning away the gospel to a license to sin is more gospel. See what he does? He says, he says look at what you have in Christ. He says, if you're being tempted to veer away from the gospel, that's what will change your heart. 
He says, look to what you have. Look to Jesus who's going to descend and make you new. I am um, totally not into sports of any kind, but I am fascinated with long-distance swimming. I've watched a ton of YouTube videos on this. And I love, like, the open water, you know, cold. They're just out there. It's amazing. But anyway, there's, there was a swimmer in, in 1952, Florence Chadwick. Maybe you've heard her story. But she stepped into the Pacific Ocean at Catalina, 1952, and she's going to swim from Catalina Island to California. She's going to be the first woman to do this. It's 26 miles of swimming. I think that would be difficult. She'd already done the English Channel, so she's a proven swimmer. That day, the weather was really foggy, and it was chilly, and she could hardly even see the boats. They have boats come alongside you, just in case there's sharks or something. I guess they shoot at them or something. Anyway, they're going along, just in case you're going to drown, which is good. And she swam for like 15 hours, and then she started to beg to be brought out of the water. And her mom, who's in one of the boats, she was like, no, no, you can do this. Keep going. You know, she's trying to kind of cheer her along. Finally, like totally physically and emotionally exhausted, she, she stopped swimming, and they pulled her out. And when she got in the boat, she could look above the fog, and she could see she was only one mile away. I know. It's just brutal. And at the news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I don't want to make excuses for myself. But I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Isn't that right? If I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And that's what Paul does for us here. You know, he says, are you tired of fighting your sin? (laughs) Anyone. Are you tired of resisting temptation? Are you tired of the hard path of following Jesus and being faithful to him? Are you tired of pressing on and straining forward and holding true and standing firm? And what Paul does is he shows you the shore. He shows you the future. He shows you what you have to look forward to. This is what we need to hear. Verse 20, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. You know, that sin you wrestle against now won't be a factor later. You're going to have a body like Jesus's by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Like the same power with which he's going to transform the world and make it new, he's going to make you new. Paul shows us the shore. And that, guys, is what we need each other for. We need each other to show us the shore. You, know, you need to show that struggling brother or sister the more gospel, not less. They don't need legalism. They need to see the shore. And there's something really interesting here in this passage is that we don't just need to be shown past grace. We need to be shown future grace. Maybe that's not a term you've heard before. But often when we encourage each other with the gospel, we encourage each other with past grace our justification, our righteousness to him, that all our sins have been forgiven, which is, I'm not saying don't do that. That's what I live on. But it's also quite helpful to show people future grace, the things that are coming, their resurrected body, their reunion with Jesus, the end of their struggle, the, the glory that we're going to have with him in the world to come. We need to show people the shore. And I just asked you this morning, do you have your eyes set on that future grace? That's what will fuel you. That's what the Apostle John said, too. Listen to future grace in this one. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we are has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And then listen to this. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Isn't that cool? That's future grace. Seeing that makes us want to be as much like him as we can now. And you might ask, and I think people have thought this, okay, if I'm going to be made completely like Christ later, why not just wait? You ever feel that way? Why not just wait? 
But guys, that's like telling a soldier on a battlefield who knows that his commander is soon going to arrive and bring victory. Why not just surrender now? You know? I just ask you this morning, for those of you who are tempted to do that, are you going to surrender to the enemy when Christ, your commander, is so near bringing your victory? Should we wait for him to return in the enemy's dungeon? (laughs) Or should we wait for Jesus fighting all the harder on the battlefield? I just say this morning, keep striving. Keep striving by the Spirit. Lean on him. Your victory is sure. It won't be long. It won't be long. This life is incredibly short. Those of you who are more at the end of it can attest to that. This life is incredibly short. Eternity is incredibly long. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need endurance. The condemnation of the devil, our own flesh being traitorous against us, the world calling out to us, or the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our enemies are great. And following your son Jesus can be very difficult. And so we pray, Lord, that you would even now be filling us with your spirit, filling us with hope, and showing us the shore. That it won't be long. And it'll be worth anything we endure when he returns. We see his face when we become like him. No sacrifice will have been too much. No endurance will have been too long. No suffering will in any way come into the calculation at that moment. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.